Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to my kitchen table. It's good to have you here. Uh, if you've been around with us over the last few weeks, you've been hearing from some different preachers preaching on different texts and topics. Uh, Mitch Klein preached on God's glory and making wise decisions. And then Chris Meyer preached a couple sermons out of Philippians chapter 4. And uh, Dan Olson has been taking us kind of through the life of Moses, through the book of Exodus. And uh, last time I was up to preach, I did a little three-week series on Psalm chapter 1. But if you remember, that little series was a detour from the series I was right in the middle of, which was in the book of the prophet Malachi. So this morning, I'm excited to return to Malachi, where we're going to be talking about the Judeans challenging of God's justice. The Judeans challenging of God's justice, which we're now coming to after we've already seen their doubting of God's love in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and their begrudgery in God's worship in chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9 and their faithlessness toward God's covenant in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. So again, this morning we're looking at the Judeans' challenging of God's justice. And I want to begin this morning by asking you to finish this sentence. Uh, it's an old adage we use which usually accompanies a cautionary tale about a person or people who really wanted something to happen, but then when that thing they wanted to happen actually happened, not only was it not what they expected, but it was a disaster. That adage is, be careful what you... That's right. If you didn't say it, I know you're thinking it. Be careful what you wish for, or be careful what you ask for, because you just might get it. Well, our passage this morning is a be careful what you wish for kind of story, because in it we'll see people wishing for something that is obviously far more dangerous and terrifying than they understand. Something they never would have wished for if they really knew what they were wishing for. And hopefully you and I will learn from their careless wishing and will respond by becoming more wise and thoughtful about the things we wish for, okay? So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into this cautionary tale. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, at first glance, it, it might be difficult to see exactly what the point of this passage is, and and Lord, it might be very confusing for some. So Lord, I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to guide us and uh, to illuminate your word to us so, so that none of the precious gold that we mine out of this passage would be lost on any one of us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And as just a reminder, as you're turning there, the prophet Malachi has been giving these wake-up calls to renewed covenant fidelity to the post-exilic community of Judah. 
the Judeans who have returned to the land of Judah from exile in Babylon. That's what post-exilic means, after exile, as opposed to pre-exilic, which means before exile, okay? And this morning we come to Malachi's fourth wake-up call in chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 6. And this passage unfolds in three parts. First, we see the Judeans challenge to God's justice, chapter 2, verse 17. And then we see God's threefold response to the Judeans' challenge, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And then lastly, we see God's appeal to his grace, chapter 3, verse 6. So again, that's the Judeans' challenge to God's justice, God's threefold response to the Judeans' challenge, and then lastly, God's appeal to his grace. So let's first read the Judeans' challenge to God's justice, chapter 2, verse 17. So Malachi begins saying, You, Judeans, have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So the Judeans have done three things. Number one, they've wearied the Lord with their words. They've wearied him with their words. And and what this doesn't mean is that God is sitting upon his throne with his face buried in his hands, saying to himself, oh, I'm just so exhausted. I'm so tired. These people have wiped me out. Oh no. Malachi is saying that the almighty God of infinite strength and power and who does not grow weary. The almighty God is sick and tired and has had enough of their words. And here's why. Number two, they've vilified the Lord. They've vilified him. They've made him out to be the bad guy, the villain in league with Satan, saying that he considers evil to be good and that he delights in evil. Now, there's obviously no excuse for ever saying such a blasphemous thing about the holy God. However, we do know something about why the Judeans might have been led to say this from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because in those books we learn that the Judeans have been constantly harassed and terrorized by their surrounding enemies ever since returning to Judah from exile in Babylon. And to them, this just doesn't seem right or fair because they're God's chosen people. How could God allow his own people to suffer at the hands of these godless pagan nations? But you see, instead of of taking their fears and doubts and suffering to the Lord, they've decided to talk about God behind his back and to make him out to be the bad guy. Number three, They've taunted the Lord to prove that he is who he says he is. They've taunted him to prove that he is who he says he is. They say, where is the God of justice? And we know that this isn't an honest question because in the very same breath, they're saying that God delights in evil, in injustice. So what they're really saying is, if God truly were just, 
as he says he is, things wouldn't look like this. We wouldn't be suffering like this. So where is this God of justice, huh? Why doesn't he come on out and show himself? The Judeans are taunting God to prove that he is who he says he is. And to these people who have just wearied and vilified the Lord, the holy God, I'd say, be careful what you wish for. And then we see God's response to the Judeans' challenge, part one, chapter three, verse one. Behold, meaning look intently to this thing I'm about to show you. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the Judeans are saying, where are you, O great God of justice? And then God responds saying, oh, I am coming, which is a bit chilling considering the context. But the way God says he's coming is a bit interesting. He says that he's going to first send his messenger ahead of him to prepare the way before him. And in ancient times, when a king was coming to visit a part of his empire, he would often send a messenger ahead of him to tell the people of that land that their king was coming and that they would do well to roll out the red carpet and spruce up the place a bit and, and put on a smile and do everything they can to make their land fit for a king before he comes. And there are several passages, several of them in the New Testament, which explicitly link this prophesied messenger here in Malachi to John the Baptist. Remember that guy? The guy who came out of the wilderness and wore clothing made of camel's hair and ate locusts and honey and whose ministry was to prepare the hearts of people to receive the Messiah by calling them to repent of their sins and be baptized. That's the guy God is pointing forward to here in Malachi. That's the guy who prepared the way for the incarnate Lord, the Word made flesh, the one who literally came to his temple and about whom John exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And then we see God's response to the Judeans' challenge, part two, verses two through four. But who can endure the day of his, the Messiah's, coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So in biblical times, a refiner was a person who purified metals by heating them up into a molten state with an extremely hot fire, and then by removing the impurities, or dross it's called, which would bubble its way up to the surface. 
And then a fuller was a person who washed clothes. And what fullers used to clean and bleach dirty clothes was a particular type of soap called lye, which was extremely corrosive and would give you a chemical burn if it touched any part of your skin. So think about this. Jesus, on the day of his coming, is being compared to a metal-melting fire and a chemical-burning soap. Not images that usually come to mind when we think about who Jesus is, right? And yet, this is what God wants his people to know about him here in this passage. He wants them to know that when he appears, the means by which he will purify and cleanse his people is not by the waving of a magic wand or, or by the production of a long list of rules to follow, but by a kind of holy melting and burning. Very interesting. And then we see God's response to the Judeans' challenge, part three, verse five. Then... I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So do you see what God's doing here? He's addressing the same group of people, the Judeans, but is making a distinction between those among them whom he is for and intends to purify and cleanse and those among them whom he is against and intends to judge and destroy. In other words, The Judeans as a whole are God's chosen people for the purpose of being the nation that God would work through in history to bring about the Messiah. But that doesn't mean that all of them are just automatically saved. In fact, many of them have never truly repented of their sin and have have trusted in the Lord, but have probably just thought, well, we read the scriptures and we say the prayers and we grew up in a believing family. And we can trace our lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so we must be good with God. And yet God points out here that some of these people have lives that are characterized by sorcery rather than true spirituality and adultery rather than covenant faithfulness and swearing falsely rather than speaking truth and so on and so forth, meaning they bear no fruit no evidence in their lives that they really belong to God and have hearts that have been changed by God at all. In other words, a a certain group among these people who are challenging God's justice and are even taunting him to prove it, they're saying, no more grace, Lord. We want to see your wrath poured out upon your enemies. These people are so foolish and sinful to not see that they themselves are God's enemies and that they would be consumed in a second if God's justice was unleashed. 
goats and the sheep of Judah together have become so distracted by the blood on their enemies' hands that they've looked right past the blood on their own hands and have carelessly, thoughtlessly asked for something that would swiftly end them all. But then in the last part of the passage, we see something truly amazing, an astonishing response from God. We see God's appeal to his grace, verse six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, I, the Lord, remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. I do not lie. I keep my promises. I keep my word. I keep covenant in my disposition toward you. My, my frame of mind toward you, Judeans, is a disposition of grace. And so even when you are faithless, I remain faithful. And even when you are unloving, I continue to love you. And even when you are ungrateful, I continue to lavish blessings upon you. And even when you weary me with your words, I listen. And even when you vilify me and taunt me to prove that I am who I say I am, which would end your life before you could even blink, I respond mercifully and promise to send you a savior who will purify and cleanse every true believer of all unrighteousness. O Judeans, you have asked for justice and it's justice that you deserve. But because I do not change and my grace abides, I refuse to give you this thing you ask for, which you obviously don't understand. And that's Malachi's fourth wake-up call. And I think there are at least two important lessons from it for us this morning. The first being the most obvious and simple one, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. And I think this message is particularly timely because, well, what J word has our culture become so fond of throwing around everywhere all the time? Justice. Oh, we love justice, don't we? I mean, we've got social justice, Racial justice, reproductive justice, environmental justice, economic justice, gender justice, transgender justice. I mean, we've got some type of justice for pretty much any and every occasion, right? And if the sticker on your car or the sign in your yard has the word justice on it, our culture sees you as a good person right? Because who doesn't want justice? People who want injustice? See how that works? 
justice is our new sexy cultural buzzword that we apparently don't want to be caught not saying everywhere all the time and and apparently want to worship as a kind of sacred holy word that carries such a weight and authority that it simply cannot be questioned or criticized in any context ever. And this is absolutely terrifying to me for many obvious reasons, but but also for this perhaps less obvious reason that our culture's infatuation with justice has almost entirely banished away from our consciousness the concept of grace. I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture's relationship with grace has grown very cold, very fast. And even in the church, even in the church, we we can find examples of sermons today where the concept of grace has mysteriously vanished while the concept of justice has apparently become what the whole Christian life is all about. And this is a huge problem because God himself favors grace over justice. And here's the proof. You're alive and breathing right now instead of suffering the punishment your sin deserves, which is death and eternal separation from God forever. And upon the cross, where Jesus bore in his body all the wrath of God against the sins of his people and then died to take it away. God's justice was carried out as the means to give us, what? Grace. And you don't even have to read the Bible carefully. You don't even have to read it carefully to see grace upon grace upon grace upon grace dripping off of every page from Genesis to Revelation. Oh, how God deals with us is so gracious, so merciful, so patient, so kind, so compassionate, so tender. He knows how messed up we are. He knows how selfish and prideful and vengeful we are. He knows all of our secret sin. He knows everything about us, and yet he's so gentle with us so as not to break us, but to heal us because he favors grace over justice. And his justice is only reserved for those who will not come to him for healing and and worship him for his grace. But all our culture seems to be talking about now is just justice, justice, justice. Give them what they deserve and give me what I deserve. And for the Christian who really knows, who knows what we really deserve, and who knows just how terrible and horrifying even the thought of true divine justice really is because it's eternal death, everlasting death, the exact opposite of what Jesus graciously lived and died and rose to give, which is everlasting life. For the Christian to wish for the outpouring of God's justice is a death wish. It's a 
murderous and suicidal wish. Now, to be clear, I do think it's generally okay for Christians to pray for a kind of human justice, like, Lord, I pray that guy gets caught, or Lord, I pray that person gets his stolen car back, you know, those kinds of prayers. And if you are ever in a situation where someone acts unjustly against you in a way that's broken the law, you need to call the cops immediately and they need to be brought to justice, okay? But to ever pray for divine justice is a stone we shouldn't ever be willing to cast or even continue to hold in our hand. At least that's what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees when they were about to stone the woman caught in adultery. He said, let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at her, which was Jesus' way of letting them all know that they all deserved to be stoned to death for their sins and were no more deserving of grace than she was. And the scribes and Pharisees wisely dropped their stones and walked away. And I guess I can only speak for myself, but I don't want to go to the grave being remembered as a guy who was full of justice, but kept a little room for grace. I want to be remembered as a guy who was full of grace, but kept a little room for justice. And I don't want to spend my whole life wondering, like the Judeans, where is the God of justice when I see things happening in the world or in my own life that are unjust? Rather, I want to rest in God's grace even when I fear or doubt or suffer. I want to rest in God's grace and I want to recognize that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. And that that is an awful reality and that I should be on my knees every day pleading for God's grace to find even my worst enemies because I don't want anybody to bear his wrath and because when I was an enemy of the holy God, he showed me grace. We must be so careful what we wish for. And then our second important lesson from this wake-up call is a little less obvious and a little more complicated, but, but it will tie together some of the loose threads from our passage, and that is humbly accept that your afflictions may be the fire and soap that the Lord is using to purify and cleanse you. Humbly accept that your afflictions may be the fire and soap that the Lord is using to purify and cleanse you. If we go back in time a bit to some of the earlier minor prophets we've looked at, specifically Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, who all prophesied to Judah before the Babylonian exile in 586 BC, we saw that all of those prophets were warning Judah that if they, as a nation, would not repent of their sin and return to the Lord, that God would raise up their enemies to take them into exile, which is precisely what ended up happening because Judah did not heed 
their warnings. But we know that the Babylonian exile wasn't God's way of just getting rid of his people. No, God was, God was using the exile for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to discipline his people in order to turn their hearts back to him. Right? Like, like spend some time in the desert and you will feel your need for water. Or spend some time in a storm and you will feel your need for shelter. That was God's intention. And, and you'd think that after 70 years in that fire of affliction, that the Judeans would have left Babylon and returned to Judah just on fire for the Lord. But now, through the years, we've come to the post-exilic prophet, prophet Malachi, who shows us that the Judeans have been doubting God's love and have been begrudging God's worship and have been faithless toward God's covenant and have been challenging God's justice, and now their enemies are once again terrorizing them. And do you think it's any surprise to the Lord? Or do you think that the sovereign, providential God who controls kings and kingdoms and nations and peoples and everything has once again raised up their enemies against them in order to discipline them, to, to turn their hearts back to him again? I say the latter, and here's why. Because right in the middle of this wake-up call, there's this interesting prophecy given about a coming Messiah who will be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will come to melt and burn the impurities and stains of sin out of his people. So do you see what God's doing here? In effect, he's saying, look, Judeans, your enemies are not who you should be worried about. You are who you should be worried about. There is blood on your hands that needs to be washed away. There is sin in your heart that needs to be melted away. And when Messiah comes, it's this enemy, your sin enemy, which I'm going to be dealing with, either by punishing you for it, or by rescuing you from it, which he'd accomplish how? By pouring out the fullness of his justice and wrath upon this Messiah, upon his own son, upon this spotless lamb of God who threw himself into the proverbial fire and laid down his life for his sheep upon the cross. That's the first sense in which God would purify and cleanse his people of their sin through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus who bore in his body all the sins of his people and then died to pay for them and to forgive them. But another sense in which God purifies and cleanses his people because though our sin has been paid for, we still battle against it every day because there's still sin in us. Another sense in which God purifies and cleanses his people of their sin is through a process we undergo in this life called sanctification. 
sanctification, whereby through the Holy Spirit's power, we become more and more holy, more and more separated from sin unto the Lord. That's what it means to be holy. So in this first salvation sense, it's Jesus who stands in the fire for us. But in this other sanctification sense, it's us who stand in the fire. Not the destructive fire of God's justice and wrath, but the refining fire. Which brings us back to our lesson. We must must humbly accept that our afflictions may be the fire and soap that the Lord is using to purify and cleanse us. Here's the truth. God often uses afflictions in our lives to get our attention when we are constantly looking elsewhere or to discipline us when we are acting in rebellion against him or to wean us from our dependence upon the world and things and favorable circumstances when we are trying so hard to make everything in our life conform to our idea about how things should go for us. This is why God has once again afflicted the Judeans by sending their enemies upon them because they're not looking to him. They're not trusting in him. They're not depending upon him. And God wants you and me to look to and trust in and depend upon him too. And sometimes the only way for that to happen is for him to graciously cause everything in our life to come crashing down all around us and to bring us to the end of our rope in order to move us to cry out to him and to run back into his arms. That's the way it should always be, but there are so many things in this life that we are constantly tempted to run to and cry out to other than him. And this is, this is why sanctification is often so painful because while God is trying to change us, there's something inside of us that is desperately trying to cling to the world and to our habits and to our secret sins that we aren't yet willing to part with. And sometimes it takes a minor catastrophe in our lives for us to finally release our grip on all those things so that we can fully turn and cling to Christ. The process by which the Holy Spirit is separating us from our sin is kind of like how a refiner separates gold from dross or how a fuller separates garments from stains. It often hurts, and it can feel unjust, right? Because it doesn't feel like I deserve to lose my home. And it doesn't feel like I deserve to be picked on at school or in the workplace. And it doesn't feel like I deserve to get cancer. And the truth is that, no, we really don't deserve any of, those, any of those things because what we really deserve is something much, much worse. See, we might be tempted to look at the life of Joseph, for example, and say, 
wow, he really didn't deserve to be hated by his brothers and sold into slavery and falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. And yet, what did Joseph himself acknowledge with his own words at the end of it all? He said to his own brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Not only because God was changing Joseph through the process, but but also because God ultimately was sparing a whole nation from famine through Joseph. Or we might be tempted to uh, look at the life of the Apostle Paul and say, wow, he really didn't deserve to have that thorn in his side, that tormenting spirit. And Paul pleaded with God three times, Lord, please remove it. Please remove it. Please, Lord, please remove it. But how did God respond? He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God didn't want Paul operating in his own strength and in his own abilities, lest he become puffed up and prideful, thinking that all the power was coming from him. And so God humbled him and made him a vessel of his power. Or we might similarly be tempted to look at our own lives and say, wow, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This is miserable. This is evil. And what we learn from our passage this morning is that the wrong response is to look at all those things, all those hard things in our life and say, where is the God of justice? But rather to look in the mirror and say, Lord, what are you trying to show me? Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Lord, how are you trying to change me? Lord, where is the dross in my life that needs to be burned out of me? Lord, where are the stains in my life that need to be washed out of me? Lord, I know that you have a good purpose for everything that happens in my life. And so, Lord, if it's in your will, please show me that purpose. Listen, God... God doesn't bring afflictions into our lives because he enjoys watching us squirm, but because he loves us enough to keep pursuing our hardened hearts, whatever it takes. And sometimes what it takes is something dramatic or traumatic to break into them because sometimes the walls that we've built up around our hearts are so tall and so thick that it takes the detonation of certain explosives to bust a hole through them so that Christ can come in and rescue us. That often hurts. But ultimately, it's a kind and loving and gracious act of mercy. Amen. We must humbly accept that our afflictions may be the fire and soap that the Lord is graciously using to purify and cleanse us. And I'll just close by saying that this wake-up call has been a wake-up call for me. 
because I have, I have always been such a control freak, a control freak in every sense of the word freak. And I've always been almost conniving in how I go about trying to get what I want and having things fall into place for me. But over the last year, so many things in my life have gone sideways. And I know I'm not the only one. I know that that's the case for many of us. So many things in my life have gone sideways. And it's all been so hard for me to cope with, even debilitating at times, that it's just, it's just revealed to me how much I've actually been depending upon myself and upon things going the way I want them to go rather than upon God. And this assault to my sense of control has really hurt in a lot of ways. But I know that it's for my good and I wouldn't trade it for anything because I need to grow in my dependence upon God and in recognizing how not in control I really am and that that's okay. My life is in good hands and it's not these... <laughs> And if there is anyone out there this morning, like me, who finds themselves presently in some fire of affliction, some fear, some doubt, some suffering, some diagnosis, some failure, some loss, my prayer is that we together would rest in God's grace and would recognize that God cares for us so deeply and that this fire we're walking through is not intended to destroy us, but to refine us, that we might shine like gold. That's what it says in the passage. And that's God's intention. He wants us to shine as he's transforming us into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Yes, it hurts, but it's so worth it. And rather than blaming God for it, it's something that we can praise God for. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for continuing to pursue us even though we spend so much of our time running from you. And Lord, we recognize that it's your grace that strikes us with afflictions for the purpose of causing us to cry out to you and to run back into your arms and that it would be terrible to just always get what our hardened hearts want and to just be allowed to continue on down the path of destruction without ever being turned around and to be lost apart from you. What a terrible thought, Lord. So Lord, help us. Help us to rest in your grace and to recognize that you care for us deeply, even when our circumstances make that difficult, Lord. Lord, we pray these things for your glory alone in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.
Amen. Go in the grace of God. See her home.